1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Andres Bernard, the author of Theory of the Hashtag. Andres, thanks for being here with me today.
0: Thanks. Thank you.
1: So I'm hoping you can start out by talking a little bit about what got you interested in the hashtag and writing this um, book about it.
0: Yeah, I think my interest um arose um at the peak of the me too debate, let's say in the winter 2017-18 when in um, also in Germany where I live, I would say on every day a um, couple of newspaper articles and hundreds of facebook and um twitter postings um were dealing um, with this movement and um and this hashtag so to speak. And um In Germany, and um, of course, um, as well, and especially in the US, I think there have been discussed day by day in in, in, in hundreds of of postings, um, the ethical and political um, um, reasons and the ethical and political um, content of all that. But what I've never seen, at least in Germany, was um, somebody who dealt, let's say, with the media technological conditions of this whole movement, uh, or in other words, how the hashtag shaped the whole debate. And you remember that um, there have been, for example, a lot of um, statements, uh, at least as far as I knew in, in Germany and Europe, about the problem, let's say, of the um, of the thresholds of this movement, so where there's, um, there's a certain kind of um, abuse starts for example what could you consider as part of me too what not and my um, um, impression was that um, the hashtag has a pretty ambivalent or had a pretty ambivalent function in that movement that on the one hand of course it was a very very precious enhancer of voices on the other hand there was a little risk of homogenization so to speak that for example some nuances or some differentiations of of statements um, were problematic because you all had to subsume it under this one hashtag. And this was the start. And I thought it could be interesting to write kind of a structural analysis of the hashtag as the organizer of public discourse in the age of social media. And that was the beginning.
1: So you sort of start out by giving a bit of a history to the hashtag and how it came about in social media. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that history?
0: Yes, of course. I mean, um, when, when I started to do research on, on this um, short book, I firstly was interested in in the, in the fact when when has the hashtag been um, introduced in, into Twitter, for example, and to Instagram a short time later. And then you have um, very fast this, you could say, official little history about this, that a product designer and activist in, in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, um, called Chris Messina, um, introduced the hashtag um, to Twitter in, in the summer of 2007. And then um, at first it was a little, you know, the whole system was a little reluctant to, to use it. But then with the San Diego um, fires in October of 2007, it kind of was launched, um, to Twitter and the success story began. And then, as always, you know, as a historian of technology or as a historian of media, I'm always a little suspicious about these very clear, very, very one dimensional, um, histories of invention. And so I just, um, thought, um, t- to reconstruct it a little more, um, with a little more, um, um you know intensity or a little more um precision and so uh, then i then I looked around what what were the techniques what were the the, the trials around two thousand and seven to organize the the sheer mass of tweets um not only by author but only by uh, also by 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 topics by subjects and so it turned out that maybe what chris Messina who is really a very very good um marketer of himself was chris messina claimed as his own singular invention was maybe one version of a bunch of very many trials of very many um processes of organizing something like the hashtag around 2007 so that's maybe the you know that's the first chapter maybe in the book
1: right and and you also move into setting us up with sort of that social media and that history and that sort of um, complicated history, but also then you talk about it as a symbol and sort of linguistics and looking at the symbol of the hashtag. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you learned about the origins of it as um, this, well, in the United States, what we would call the pound sign.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, first, you know, what what I also was interested in is Is basically, um, fundamentally about the, the aura or the, or the power of the hashtag today. And you can, you can figure it out if you, let's say, on a random day, if you go through the street of a city like, like New York City, where, where I'm, um, working, um, at, at the moment. Um, if you, if you go around, you see the sign on the, on the uh, covers of books, you see the sign on the graffiti, uh, on walls, you see the sign even as a tattoo. Um, and you know, on all these materials on, on paper, on stone, on wool, on skin, um, the hashtag cannot be clicked upon. It cannot connect anything. And still it has uh, obviously such a power at the moment. And that's, I think, the interesting thing for me to, to face, um, the power of the hashtag, which, um, you could say, which which brings a promise with it you know the promise of connectivity and the promise of bundling voices and that's what i was interested in and when you when you ask uh, what was the you know the history and the biography of the sign before that it's it's very interesting because at least i didn't know so much about this and in in the us um as you said the sign was always called pound sign or number sign and everybody knows the abbreviation um number 10 for example with the sign or or 10 and then the sign as 10 pounds for something and if you read books um already in the 19th century this sign shows up um what you call the hash and i try to find out and during my research how this came up, up and i i think the um the most convincing theory is that in earlier times when there was no book print or whether it was m- more handwriting, you know, in the in the in the books of of um people who were salesmen or or who had to who write um you know books about their, their um their their sales, they always um um used um the L B in handwriting L B with a dash in it as an abbreviation and this meant pound. And the the- this uh, theory says that um, um, decade by decade, year by year, um, when they all wrote this LB dash in the handwriting in a very loose way, um, it, it more and more looked like the hashtag. And this is a convincing history, I think. And so when 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 book print arose, and you had to find a sign for this LB with a dash in it. Then you created this this sign as a as a character in in print. And and that's interesting. And so it came up. And then um, there was a very important year in the history of the typewriter. When the typewriter was invented in the last quarter of the nineteenth century. Then in eighteen eighty-eight in Toronto, people met for the first Congress of the Universal Typewriter Keyboard, and they wanted to create uh, standard keyboard, which has not been there until 1888. And then they talked about what signs except for letters and numbers should be on the keyboard. And then they decided that the, um, that the pound sign should be included above uh, the three, like until today. And this was a very important uh, moment because from that on, you could say, um, the hashtag or the pound sign was part of the inner you know, the inner standard um, um, a bunch of, of signs. And, and then we could, if you want, um, we could then switch to the touch tone telephone, which is the next big threshold in the history of the, of the sign.
1: Right. And I thought that was really interesting too, that because the typewriter had the pound sign, the touchtone phone then incorporated it as opposed to the other symbols it was thinking of using.
0: Right. And that's so interesting because, you know, I mean, if you are a historian of, of media technology or a historian and historian of typography, it's always the questions, the question why, you know, why some signs have had this big career, so to speak, mm-hmm. and some signs kind of vanished over the times. And, and that's really interesting because when the first touchstone telephones were created by AT&T in the early 1960s, um, after a couple of um of years and the first um um models of these telephones, um there was the need for two more signs. So you, you had the you had the you had the the, the figures, um one to zero, and then there were two um two free spaces, left of the zero and right of the zero. And since the telephone in the nineteen sixties more and more was connected to early computer systems, for example if you wanted to type in your credit card number or you wanted to be um you wanted to to talk to um um your bank um to 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 ask some question for your account and you had to type in your account then um there were two signs um necessary first a sign to start the process this was uh, how you how do you call it in english and German is asterix the the star
1: right yeah. Is, how
0: do you say it in English? I don't know. I
1: would probably say the same thing. The to start the phone or to start yeah, I would probably say the same thing.
0: I mean the name of the sign, I don't know the oh, word, the, pa- the the other one, the the star.
1: Yeah, oh, the hmm. in German
0: it's asterisk.
1: Right. Yes, it would be asterisk probably that right. same. But some people say star though.
0: Okay, so you had the star to start the process and then um the engineers of the touchtone telephone thought about what could be the sign um f- for the ending of the process, you know, like the confirmation um type in your number and confirm with the <laughs> sign and in the early um uh in the first at & t touchstone phones, it was um the diamond sign and and then they they wanted to to go on on market you know, try to sell the first phones in the mid 1960s and then they figured out that the diamond sign is not on the universal typewriter. And since you had to fill out so many formulas and you had so many different form of, of papers, which would be, um, at hand in stores and everything for advertising and for, for sales. And then the engineer said, no, we have to have a sign and um, which is part of the universal keyboard. And then they decided to take the, the pound sign. And this is like the big, um, threshold in the biography of, of the, of the pound sign in the, in the second half of the 20th century, because from then, you could say, okay, now, now this, um, pound sign is really one of the most important signs on touch tone telephones. And then when the internet started for, for, for everybody in the early nineties, then it uh, showed up in these, maybe you remember in these very early forms of chats, which were called re- um, relay chats. Mm-hmm. And you already then had the structure that on these early internet chats, if you wanted to start a new subject, you put in the, um, uh, the pound sign. So this was already kind of a, of a pre-era of the hashtag, and then when Twitter came in 2006, one year later, um, the hashtag started its career.
1: Right, and so you give us a sort of history of this symbol, um, and then you also talk about how this um, using this symbol impacts the use of keywords in sort of library sciences as well as sort of organizing things and categorizing things. So can you talk a little bit about this, what has happened now with keywords and, and sort of that history and how that comes into play?
0: Yes. I mean, when, when you asked me um, before what was the first um, impact or the first, uh, the first um, intention to write this book, I think what this was the second, uh, the second thing, the second interest that I, uh, I, I had the question, um, how did, um, this new allocation and this new organization of knowledge in digital cultures, um, is driven by keywords and, uh, or by buzzwords. And if you remember back, let's say around the turn of the century, 20 years back, what would you say? Um, where was the keyword? I would say the keyword was something which was not present in general organization of knowledge, but was only something which was there in very marginal contexts. So if you think what what you've already said, if you think about the archive or library context, you had the subject catalog or you had the keyword catalog in, for example, university or public libraries, and there you had the structure that keywords organized um, knowledge. Then another thing in, in Germany and Europe, there has been since the early 20th century a subdiscipline called keyword research. In German Schlagwortforschung. I'm not sure um how it, it was um developed in the US, if there's something which is called keyword research, but in at least in, in Germany where it was kind of invented in historiography in the early 20th century. This was the need, you know, to, um, to, to reconstruct a certain epoch, historical epoch, or to reconstruct a certain social movement by keywords. So what is the keyword of the reformation age? What is the keyword of, uh, 19th century democracy, um, research? And then, then you kind of narrate history. Um, in terms of finding keywords. So in these two disciplines, archival library sciences and historiography, the keyword was there, but this was only totally marginal. Nobody was interested except for, um, experts. And then, um, in digital culture and with the development of, um, social media networks like Twitter and Instagram, um, within a couple of years only, um, until today, The keyword is the virtual um, center of organizing statements and documents and knowledge, and I think that's very interesting for for a media researcher because um, what does that mean? And that's something you know. In this short book, I maybe just try to lay out in a first in a first step. I'm far away from really having analyzed this in depth, but. I just posed it as a question, maybe, and this question is still very interesting for me. What does it mean for a culture? If practically all statesmen, statements on political issues, on, on, on cultural issues, on, uh, popular issues today are debated by using keywords and by trying to, you know, um, um step up or, or by trying to accumulate the power of a statement because you use a hashtag or a keyword which is used by so many other people. And that's an absolutely new um, constellation in the ways how public discourse works.
1: Right. And and so then you bring this into thinking about sort of political activism as well as marketing. And so let's start with the political activism. So you talk especially about the role of uh, the hashtag in um, talking about, in the United States, police violence and police brutality and a lot of what happens with Black Twitter and Black Lives Matter. And, and so can you talk a little bit about the role of the hashtag with political activism?
0: Yes, sure. I mean, you know, this was maybe the, like, the 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 um longest part of this of this book or the longest part of this essay that I thought to myself um where in which fields in which spheres um does the hashtag play the most important role today and if um if you for example search a database in a library or if you do a Google search, then something very clear um, um happens what you have already just mentioned. Because you will find out that, um, with the exception of very, very singular little, um, 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 texts, you only have really two big spheres, um, where the hashtag really plays a role in terms of being analyzed and being theoreticized and all that. And the, the one of these two spheres is political activism. And I think this is a story. And that's the reason why I tried to cut it. A little short in this book that's something which has been analyzed a lot i mean if you think back um when when does twitter play a role or when does the hashtag play a role as something which is kind of focused in a theoretical way then it's always um the so-called um hashtag activism and i tried just to um reconstruct this this short history in um in in Mentioning or in analyzing a couple of, of very popular, um, events where it, where it has played a role. And as you have just mentioned, I think the most popular hashtags in, um, in terms of political activism were hashtags like Black Lives Matter or, or Ferguson, where of course the very important productive role of the hashtag has become very clear. So, if you think about events where um where white um authoritative persons armed persons kill unarmed black teenagers then you can say that um both the um journalistic and juridical reactions towards these events in mass media and in television and in newspapers were not very satisfying were insufficient and then of course a medium like twitter and a hashtag like black lives matter or ferguson which has been um used in over 30 million statements until today um is a very powerful tool and uh and that's what i would say that's the one you could say that's the one big um big um you know, big moment of the hashtag that for those who are not represented well in mass media, for those whose voice is kind of ignored or at least disturbed, for those, um, the hashtag on, qu- on Twitter can be um, a site where the own voice can be raised without the filters, without the, the distorting filters of mass media. And this is, I would say, the role of the hashtag in uh, in political activism.
1: Right. And and so you sort of mirror that or you also talk about the role in marketing, which becomes very different and the use of the hashtag in marketing. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about that a bit. It, it keeps making me think of right now we have our the um, the democratic debates going on and we have this big field and sort of the use of hashtag and politics, uh, you talk about a bit as marketing as well. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that other role and the marketing role of the hashtag?
0: Yes, of course. Um, you know, when I started this book, um, I, I work um, at a center for digital cultures at a German university, and we have a lot of fellows from all over the world. And, this um topic of hashtag activism was kind of um present in in our in our research at the Center for digital cultures um within the last two or three years and uh, when i when I listened to these talks or when I read those um, papers and and the volumes um which have been edited with different papers on hashtag activism, I always kind of missed um the mentioning of this ambiguity because there's for example a, a, a very um a very good, very thick five hundred page um volume um called hashtag um, activism, um edited by a researcher called Nathan Rambukana, I think from California, in 2015. And there are a lot of papers, five, six hundred pages um long uh, altogether, which call the hashtag as they do in, in this book a a um a rebel. Sign, you know, a rebel um, part of typography which can alter the mainstream discourse in politics, which can be an alternative um, to to certain political um, tendencies. And I always missed when I read this um, the other side. And I would the other I would say the other side is exactly the other fifty percent of of texts of articles of instructions which show up. If you type in uh, hashtag in Google or if you type in hashtag in a database, and these other 50% are kind of uh, unknown or kind of um, ignored um, by by the academic humanities uh, community, and uh, and I wanted to you know I wanted I wanted to give um, insight in both worlds and this other um, sphere, hashtag marketing. I mean, it's very clearly understandable why the hashtag in marketing and in advertisement is so important, you know, because um, the hashtag gives the possibility to the companies um, to find a slogan or to um, t- not even to create a slogan themselves, but to find slogans, let's say, in the Instagram community and to kind of um, like pirates, you know, um, 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 take them and transform them into a slogan of product um, marketing and let all the people especially on Instagram who um, who use this um, um, hashtag on their profiles be a part of this community and um, as you know this kind of marketing um, has had a, a special name since 10 fifteen years called content marketing and content marketing reacts to the different media sphere in digital culture until Twenty twenty five 25 years ago, a company had to pay um, for advertisements in the newspaper or on radio or on television um, to have um, some, some space or some time to um, um, do marketing for their products um, as a um, separate part of media. Now, as you know, it's totally different. Now, every big company is kind of a media house itself. It has a lot of um, um, autonomous channels like like own profiles, like own Twitter, Instagram accounts, like own blogs, um, where they can act like a publisher. For example, Red Bull, the Austrian company, is the big pioneer of this. And now every company can create the media sphere where advertising is far more subtle. Advertising now means create an atmosphere and content where the consumers maybe feel in the mood that they want to connect to this brand. And so the hashtag, I would say, is the ideal agent of this, um, new content marketing because it, you know, it accelerates and it accumulates a comp, a, a, a community of consumers, which subsume their comments and their desires under this hashtag. So it's very, very practical. And I think you have to think about the consequences. You have to think if this hashtag, you could say, um, commodifies language. So the words after the hashtag or the order of words after the hashtag are kind of a commodity, a kind of a slogan, kind of a a marketing um, practice if this is the case, what does this mean for the usage of the hashtag in politics or in activism? And I think this is a question which is maybe necessary to pose.
1: Right, and you sort of end this with that discussion, is this empowering, is it sort of leveling um, that use of that hashtag within statements, how people often will use the hashtag to Um, be sarcastic or to emphasize something that they're tweeting about or posting on Instagram, but also then the use of it by companies or other ways to make it um, more uniform. And so can you just sort of talk about that and sort of the conclusions that you've come to?
0: Yes, I would say the conclusion, you know, since it's more an essay, it was not my concern really to to have this complete, absolutely um, um, structured, differentiated analysis. But it was more, since it's an 80, 90-page essay, it was more the matter of um, asking questions and to lay out some, some reflections on, on the hashtag. And I think what was important for me is to lay out this ambiguity, or this ambivalence, that um, on the one hand, of course, um, the hashtag in the last 10 years Has been a sign of empowerment, has been a sign where people can unite, where people can bundle statements to let them have more power, more influence, more impact than they would have without it. But on the other hand, and that's maybe even more important, I would say, since you can see even in the, in the, in the few months my book has been published, um, that it has been conquered more and more. By um, by um, by marketing by companies by by public relations uh, because um, it's so you know it's so seductive that um, that every every statement every statement which uses the same hashtag can be used in in this way that you kind of commodify. Um, language that you kind of, um, transform language into advertising, into marketing. And this, um, is what I, what I meant with leveling, what you have mentioned just, um, before that the, that the hashtag maybe levels, um, um, language levels desire, level statements. And you can always think about maybe this could be something like a conclusion. Um, the conclusive questions could be what has, um, what has the hashtag, maybe, how could you say, what has the hashtag enabled? It has enabled um, the amplification of voices. It has enabled the, um, you could say, it has enabled maybe the, the bundling of voices. But you could also ask, what has the hashtag weakened? And I would say it has weakened maybe the uh, uniqueness of voices, and it has weakened the um, idiosyncrasy of voices, so voices or statements which can't be compared, which can't be leveled, which are just kind of a little bit um, weird or spooky or very singular. And so in this ambivalence between empowerment and leveling, the hashtag um, is out there, I would say, in our um, digitally organized public discourse, and it's maybe worth, to think about it um, even more in the future.
1: And so you had mentioned, too, that this is part, so this is, like you said, sort of a, a longer essay, um, and that it's part of a larger book and a larger project. So can you talk a little bit about that and what this is sort of attached to and part of?
0: Yes, yes, um, very much. Um, um, in I think in the U.S., the, the, um, um, at, at Polity, the publisher, um now two big two books have been released in a very short um period so maybe 4 weeks before the hashtag book came out um there was the release date of a book called um, the triumph of profiling which is more like a, a more in-depth analysis of of 250 pages or so and in this book i was interested in a a little more and a little broader um question what uh, is the status of, of the self? What is the status of subjectivity in our digital culture today? And my starting question was very easy, because I asked um, why had 25 years ago, why why only serial killers and lunatics had a profile made by police or the FBI. And today, 25 years later, why does everyone have to have a lot of profiles voluntarily? So A format of describing subjectivity or identity, which has been in the history of criminology and psychiatry, a format um, to describe deviant subjects, has transformed in a very, very um, fast period of time into a format which is um, something we voluntarily um, do to have a certain, um, you know, to feel more attractive, to feel more... Um, um socially integrated and that was my question and um the history of the profile which i tried to reconstruct in this book from the early profiles in psychiatry in the early 20th century to the fbi offender profiles since the 1970s to today um this um, history of the profile was one thread to write um the history of Contemporary subjectivity, and the other two threads were um, the history of localization technology, where you could pose the same question: When was it necessary to localize yourself in space? Twenty years ago, it was when you know the FBI agents put a small beeper under a car to uh, to look where where the suspicious um, person will go to, or you put electronic tags on the on the on the whistle of the ankle of of criminals to look where they are um, to our contemporary um digital um practice where everybody looks uh, i don't know 50 or 100 times a day on their smartphone to locate themselves in space and the third threat of course um very prominent is the whole quantified self movement where you could also say well did it come from that people measure um, their blood pressure or measure their sweat or, or measure their, their heartbeat um, to find something out about themselves? This is also technology which came up in, in the early 20th century in terms of the lie detector. or you know, the lie detector in court, since um, around the um, First World War, was um, invented with the same um, with the same desires to find out the truth about persons as we try to, to measure our bodily, um, functions today. But again, with the big difference that the lie detector wanted to, wanted to uh, know something about deviant subjects. And today it's about healthy, normal, uh, happy subjects. And so that was the, that was the approach of the book to kind of analyze the criminological and psychiatric fundaments of our contemporary subjectivity. And this big, for me, still very, very disturbing threshold that all formats of identifying deviant subjects, lunatics, criminals, etc., are today the model of creating healthy, normal, happy subjects.
1: Interesting, that's fascinating. Um, so as we sort of wrap this up, are there other things? I know these both just then came out. Are you working on anything else or is there anything else you want to share about what you're working on right now?
0: Yes. I mean, um, 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 since I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you're interested in my work. I can only say for, for, to whom it may concern that there's, um, also, uh, a book I wrote translated in English, which is about the history of the elevator, totally different subject. <laughs> um, but also interesting, you know, um, before the elevator, um, all the spaces uh, uh, on, on, on the top floors were very scary and for poor people and for illegitimate relationships. And then after the elevator, you had the penthouse, the roof garden, and the chief executive suite. So this is kind of a, also a a book which tries to examine the, the implications of a technological shift. And at the moment, yes, I try to I try to write a book on something also very very different. I, I try to write a book on pinball machines. But uh, um, I hope that once it's it's done, it's maybe also translated uh, to the English language, and then um, you could read it. But this is a more it's not maybe an academic or scholarly book, but more something like an attempt to to narrate my own life as a series of pinball games because mm-hmm. I've been playing for a lot of years. So that's what I'm working on at the moment.
1: Well, it has been wonderful talking to you and learning a little bit more about your work and what you're doing. Um, again, this uh, is Rebecca Buchanan, who for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And I interviewed Andreas Bernard, who's the author of Theory of the Hashtag, as well as The Triumph of Profiling. So thank you so much for talking with me on New Books Network.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Mm